Curiosity is freedom, Chris. Curious about how much of your promise you can materialize. Curious about how you can make your business better. Curious about what people who think differently from us are like. Curiosity about the next book you lift up that'll change your life. Curious about foods you've never tried. Curious about how to reinvent your business. Curiosity is, you know, incredibly important. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. Robin, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to today. Thanks for the invitation, Chris. Can we just get started with maybe early in your career as a lawyer and then kind of that transformation that you made to kind of the path that you've been on the last couple decades? Sure. So I um, I was encouraged to become a doctor or a lawyer when I was growing up. And, you know, society also sends us these messages. If you do these things, you're going to get these results. And success was, to me, in many ways, success was about getting a great education and then going into one of these professions. And if I did so, I would wake up and I would be feeling amazing and life, life would be perfect. The, the reality for me is uh, I, was, I felt a lot of angst. You know, it's a great word, angst. You, you really, uh, I, I'd wake up every morning. I, it's like I was going through the paces. I felt very empty. I was very successful on the outside, but I felt um, very unfulfilled within. So I went on sort of a personal odyssey and I started exploring, like, you know, how can I be happier? How can I have more energy? How do many of the world's most successful people do it, which I started reading about? I started experimenting with all sorts of different modalities from meditation to acupuncture to working with spiritual healers to you know, just talking to people who seem like they had their lives in fine order. And over about three years, I made a profound transformation, learned a lot of great ideas, reworked my life in many ways. Self-published a book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari in a 24-hour copy shop. My mother was my editor. My father helped me sell it at uh, social clubs. And um, that book just took off and led me down this path I never expected. Taking like a step into that angst and that unfulfilled. um, Like, how did you know you were unfulfilled? Was it that you weren't making enough money, that you weren't happy going to work, that you were having trouble with relationships, all the above? Like, what what was that feeling like? Well, I would say every one of us knows, if we're open to it, every one of us knows when we're not fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, what a lot of us do is we live, we escape into our minds, and that's what there are parts of the everyday hero manifesto that are cu- quite co- contrarian where I say, you know, the path to elite performance and the path to true positive thinking isn't in the mind. It's doing the work in what I call the heart set. Right. So I think if we are, if we are not escaping our bodies and if we haven't numbed out to how we feel, 
and we're paying attention to what's going on, a lot of us know exactly what unfulfilled looks like, feels like. Yep. Do you think it's harder today to get out of your mind with the iPhones and the Androids and the tablets and all of the the in your face maybe than it was kind of pre all of this technology or um, like how do you think about it from that perspective? I think what happens to us we're we're born into perfection and then we get resigned into some forms of mediocrity as human beings. There's um, the reality is from the moment we're born, like we're born as possibilitarians. We're, we're born into exceptionality. We're born with awe and wonder. We're born. Our native state is high energy and curiosity. Our native state is openness. Our native state is face faithfulness in our talents. And then what starts to happen, I believe, is we get programmed. We get programmed from our early caregivers. We get programmed by the media. We get programmed by our teachers. We get programmed by our peers. I have an acronym, PENUM. Now, parents, environment, nation, uh, A, associations, M, media. So intellectually, we get programmed. And then emotionally, we experience either macro or micro trauma. There's a chapter in the book, trauma is a teacher, and trauma is not a dirty word. But you don't get invited to someone's party, trauma. Don't get picked for the basketball team, trauma. Don't get an A on your math in your math class, trauma. Tell your mother or father or best friend, I want to be an astronaut. They laugh at you, humiliate you, trauma. Or you experience major trauma, accident, loss, illness, bankruptcy. And so we go through the very nature of life means we're going to be at the top of the mountain, but we're also going to be hurt. So through that pro negative programming and through the micro and macro trauma, we, we build almost a wall that blocks us from intimacy with our gifts and our talents. Then we wake up and Chris, we're like 25, 35, 55, 75. And we think that we see the world as it is, but the reality is we see the world as we are. And we've forgotten who we truly are. So that's a, a long way of saying, I think, yes, technology has created incredible amounts of distraction where we're not present to the moment. Having said that, life itself has created a situation where we escape the pain of potential unfulfilled. Our society tells us don't really feel those feelings. Be a positive thinker. And then we go out in the world and wonder why we don't have any joy, why we don't have empathy, why we're not as productive as we want, and why we really don't know ourselves. And 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 what you just described, all of that trauma, especially if you're a child, it's almost inevitable. I mean, you can't control what your parents are going to, how they're going to parent you or you know, what you're going to hear. You can't control these macro events. So it's fair to say that that trauma is almost inevitable. And for some people, they get more of it than others. Absolutely. I think we all experience trauma in the human condition. Some of it, you're right, some of it is more extreme than other people. But I think it's really important. There, there's a chapter in the Everyday Hero Manifesto called The Big Lie of Positive Thinking. And I love, I love positive thinking books. I'm a huge fan of the original, <clears throat> one of the classics, The Power of Positive Thinking by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. The only thing is, when I was going through, let's say, a difficult time in my life, I would do what the positive thinkers say, which is, okay, you're going through a difficulty. Look for the positives. Count your blessings. 
know that this too shall pass. But that discounted the way I was feeling. If you're having a difficult day, a difficult week, difficult decade, difficult experience, to just gratitude your way out of the situation denies the pain or the shame or the guilt or the anger, those human emotions that must be felt. Because to release a feeling, you must feel the feeling. To heal a wound, you must process through the wound. And if we do it, we can move through that. But the, the main point is a lot of us want to be more creative. We want to be more productive. We want to be better performers. We read all the books. Why don't we change? A big reason is because of those invisible suppressed emotions we've picked up through life's traumas that we've stuffed inside of us that creates war. We've got prefrontal cortex telling us we want to change the world and be elite performers and handcraft world-class lives. And then we've got the limbic system, the amygdala, at war with us, and we never get to become the people we want to be. Go a little further on that. So when you talk about feeling those feelings, so Maybe it's like rejection uh, at work, or you didn't get a deal, or you didn't get promoted, or whatever it may be. What do you mean by feeling those feelings? Like, okay, I recognize that I'm upset. Then what? I would say, Chris, I recognize that I'm upset is an intellectual exercise. Right? Like, I recognize I'm upset. That's the intellectual part of it, to feel how you feel it. I think if If someone's intimate with their feelings, if they're open to their feelings, you know exactly how it feels to be upset. You know exactly how it feels to feel sad. You know exactly how it feels to be guilty. Society has not taught us as leaders, entrepreneurs, A players. I mean, the everyday here manifesto, it's it's very much an instruction manual for exponential productivity and handcrafting a world-class life. But I also get into a lot of unorthodox ideas. Like everyone's talking about mindset is everything. I don't think mindset is everything. Mindset is important because your performance reflects your beliefs. But there's also what I talk about in the book, heart set, your emotions, health set, your health, soul set, your spirituality. So to answer your question head on, you know, when we go through life, we're human beings. We're not just mindset and psychology. We're heart set and our emotionality. And if we can learn how to process through the lower emotions, then we don't build them up. And we stay, you know, relatively pure in our emotionality. That's what gives you greater creativity, more energy, more productivity, more empathy, uh, the ability to create a better life. Why do you think this has been something that you've you've taken head on and it's fascinating, but that the majority of what you read out there is all about what you said, that positive mindset or, you know, just use your mind and you'll get over it. Why, why? is that the easy path? Well, I think we live in a, we live in a scientific, mathematically based world. And I'm not saying talking about anything about the pandemic or the plague. I'm just saying, globally where our civilization is at it's all science it's all mathematics it's all you know in many ways we be, we live in our heads everything is an intellectualization but the sistine chapel ceiling was created by a man who was in his heart the great pieces of poetry were not intellectual exercises the great inventions the, the great businesses like 
you know, Steve Jobs, in many ways, I mean, he, he was just an extraordinarily heartfelt person who wanted to change the world by giving people beautiful things that functioned incredibly well. He was, Steve Jobs was an artist much more than a, than a business person. So I think the world has taught us to intellectualize everything. The world has taught us that mindset is everything. But I believe, and this is a, a big through line through the book, instinct is so much more powerful than intellect. Intellect is the sum of ideas that the world has currently taught us are true. Mm-hmm. But it, how many times in, in history have, have ideas been sh- that were, caught, were thought to be truths were actually found to be outdated and there were new ideas? Right. I don't know if I made that clear, but yeah. instinct is more powerful than our intellect. All right. Well, I want to spend some time. You've gotten to work with uh, some of the most well-renowned uh, leaders in the world, and I kind of want to deconstruct what makes them. And we can start with, and this relates to your book, 5 a.m. Club, how we start our day, and then the characteristics that make up these great leaders. But then I also want to talk about what are the biggest leaders in the world plagued by? Where are their challenges come from? Because clearly, if they're working with you, there's things they need to work on. And so I kind of want to deconstruct what an amazing leader looks like in your eyes. I know they come in all shapes and forms. So, you know, maybe let's just sure. start with the beginning of the day. So, yes, I wrote a book a few years ago called The 5 a.m. Club. One of the underlying philosophies is, is the Spartan Credo. Sweat more, in, sweat more in training and you'll bleed less in war. And in many ways, we're in a war right now. We're in a war against the plague. We're in a war against negativity. We're in a war against distraction. We're in a war against apathy. We're in a war against average. So starting your day, the way you begin your day dramatically sets up the way your day unfolds. And what too many good souls do, it's not judgment, just reporting, but they wake up and they check their email. They wake up and they check their social media feeds. They wake up and they watch the news. They wake up and they distract themselves in so many different ways. What I teach in that book is, you know, University College London teaches us to take 66 days of practicing a new skill until you reach a point of automaticity. And the automaticity point, Chris, is the point at which it's easier to do the new skill than not to do the new skill. So what I'm evangelizing is you get up at 5 a.m. for 66 days, approximately. Mm-hmm. And through the power of the human gift of neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to grow and to adapt, you will be able to get up at 5 a.m. easily and automatically. Then what do you do? Well, there's a formula in that book, 5 a.m. Club, 20-20-20, the 20-20-20 formula. First 20 minutes, you exercise. You know, exercise is incredibly, incredibly powerful. By doing sweaty exercise first thing in the morning, you release BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which John Rady at Harvard calls miracle growth for the brain. BDNF actually promotes neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells. BDNF speeds your processing ability. BDNF uh, repairs brain cells that have been damaged by stress. Exercising during that first 20-minute pocket that I call move in the book releases dopamine. We all know now it's the inspirational neurotransmitter. Releases norepinephrine, which promotes focus. That's why after a workout, you're much more focused. 
Uh, it releases endorphins and serotonin, the feel-good neurotransmitter, reduces cortisol, the fear hormone. That's now it's 520. You've dramatically changed your your brain's chemistry, the way you're feeling. Next 20 minutes of the 20-20-20 formula, 520 to 540. It's about reflection. A lot of us are very busy in our lives, but let us not confuse busy with effectiveness. Let us not confuse movement with productivity. So 20 minutes from 520 to 540, pray, read, study, keep a journal, sit in silence and solitude. I mean, imagine just being much more reflective as you go through the day. So you live the day on your terms, on your values, you know, under what you want, how you want to live. Then the final pocket, 540 to 6, is uh, all about uh, grow. And when you, uh, you know, you asked me about the most successful people in the world, these people are monomaniacally curious. These people, you say, oh, you know, I read this book last week. They pull out their phone when you get up to go to the restroom and they order the, the book. Um, th- these people understand that education is inoculation against disruption and the leader who learns the most wins. So final 20 minutes of the 2020 20, 5am club formula is, is grow. You review your battle notes, you read Marcus Aurelius's meditation, you watch, for example, your podcast, you listen to an online course, you do something for 20 minutes to develop your knowledge base. So when you go out in the marketplace as a business person, you deliver more value, but you can also do something that will allow you to develop more self-knowledge. So that is the 5 a.m. club morning routine, the 20-20-20 formula. I'm going to ask probably an obvious question to this, and, and we'll talk about health a little bit. What does drinking do when you've been drinking the night before to that 20-20-20 opportunity? Well, I think it's actually not an um, obvious question. It's a very intelligent question. Okay. The key to an excellent morning routine is an outstanding pre-sleep ritual. Yep. So now, if you're saying, you know, you'd like to have some wine and the next you know, is that wrong? Like you live or any of your, your listeners and viewers from around the world do what feels right for you. I'm not here to tell anyone what they need to do, but it becomes harder if you've had um, more than just a glass of, of wine. I think it gets harder to wake up early in the morning. Mm-hmm. If someone says, well, yeah, that's a part of my lifestyle and, and I find great value in it. It brings joy. Then I totally, I totally hear them. And I would say, maybe you, you do the 5am club method five times a week and then you have your, your, you know, your whatever nights. Okay. The second on that was the curiosity part. Can you teach curiosity or is that something that you're born with? Well, I, I, you know, I remember once being in, in a, in a airport and this little kid, and I'm not judging again, we all make our mistakes. I sure have. I, I saw a little kid asking his dad, but daddy, this and daddy, that, that, father said why do you ask so many questions and and my fear is in that moment the little kid never asked another question so i deeply believe we are born curious like i i know you you mentioned where you live if you want to do it go out to a park you know whatever and just watch some kids with their parents you know the kids are having fun 
and watch the kids. And I guarantee you, the kids are in flow state, to use the term of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi University uh, of Chicago, and they're asking questions. So I would say I would say we are born into curiosity, and we get threatened and hoodwinked out of our curiosity to the point where a lot of us think we don't have any curiosity. Like I can't tell you how many times I'll have you know. I, there's so many books out there to read, so many courses, so many places to visit. There, the world is such a fascinating place, even with the darkness that we are in. And yet you say to someone, oh, you know, I just read this book that I love. And, and a lot of people really will go, oh, yeah. And it's not that they're not good people. And it's not that they don't have curiosity. I think it's just been numbed down inside of them. Yeah, it seems like now, I mean, there's there's. You know, I don't know if it's cultures and even with the media today, a lot of what the world is telling us is not to be curious. It's to believe what you are told in a lot of ways. And, and that's what you believe. Um, I'm not speaking just about what we're in right now, but it seems to be with, you know, there's countries that do it to, to people that are curious. Um, yeah, it's, that's an interesting thought. Curiosity is... Uh, is a superpower and it doesn't seem to be uh, at the top of mind for a lot of the big institutions around the world right now. Well, I'd say curiosity is freedom, Chris. Yep. Curious about how much of your promise you can materialize. Curious about how you can make your business better. Curious about what people who think differently from us are like curiosity about the next book you lift up that'll change your life curiosity curious about foods you've never tried curious about how to reinvent your business curiosity is you know incredibly important and you asked about the people i've mentored um there's one chapter in the everyday hero manifesto that i think could bring a lot of value okay to, to your people it's the 13 hidden traits of the billionaires I've advised. And if you want, I can go through a few of those. Let's do it. Would that be helpful? That would be great. All right. So, the, well, the first is trait number one of the billionaires I've advised, a foolhardy degree of self-faith. It is stunning. See, every visionary is originally ridiculed before they are revered. The very nature of a disruptive idea that will dominate a domain and change the market and change the world means when you first tell it to people, they call you crazy. So somehow these billionaires, these industry titans, these world changers, they have what I've described as trait one, a foolhardy degree of self-faith. They literally just believe in their vision when no one else in the world believes in their vision. Until the vision gets so much traction, the world goes, that was on like bottled water. <laughs> that was that was obvious. A car? Like when was the last talk about curiosity? When was the last time you looked up at a plane and went, a plane, a plane? <laughs> and I and I know that used to be a TV show, but you know. It's that's some visionary, like I think the Wright brothers, yep. who, who, who had a foolhardy degree of self-faith. Their critics threw stones at them. They persisted, and they just trusted themselves until they changed the world through that. Uh, num number, let's go to number three, a terrific thirst for rebellion. 
mean, these people are pirates. The most successful people I've met, you're right. They don't think, they don't listen to the status quo belief system. Mm-hmm. These, these people are pirates. They're <laughs> swashbucklers. One of my favorite quotes is, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in adapting the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Obviously, woman as well. But I, th- I think he said it so much more elegantly than I ever could. So trait number three of the billionaires I've mentored they're swashbucklers, they're outright revolutionaries. And I have to say a lot of them, I'm just reporting from my two decades of experience, they don't feel the rules apply to them. And so they make their own rules. Uh, Number four, a childlike level of curiosity. Um, Trait number five, an acute carelessness about the opinions of critics. Most of us, we have a great idea, whether it's to find love, run a marathon, be happier, build a business, find more freedom. And as soon as we share it with the energy vampires and dream stealers around us, and they start to laugh at us or say, that makes no sense, so sad we give up. What I write about in the Everyday Hero Manifesto, there's a lot about the trolls and energy critics and how to really make your ethical ambitions come true with real tools. But an opinion is just an opinion. Don't make it more than someone else's opinion. Yep. Especially in today's world. I mean, our young kids with whether it be Instagram or some of these apps where you're constantly looking for validation from a very young age. Um, it's going to be interesting how that plays out long term. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't I think I think it's not going to play out well long term. Yeah. You know, um I think I'm with you. I I love the days where you know, we'd get home from school and we play, uh, we play street hockey, or we'd just be out on the bikes. And there were, you know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't, have, we weren't glued to a white screen. I believe in addiction and distraction and the death of our creative production. Yep. I believe we are, we are spending the finest hours of our greatest days, you know, watching four-second dance videos, or you know, people doing wild stunts on motorcycles. And I think life is an incredible gift we've all been given. I think we all have incredible promise. There are no extra people on the planet. I understand the dopamine loop. I understand the addictive nature of these technologies. But I I feel they've really caused a, a, a culture of comparison. I think a lot of us, I think the greatest gift you can give as a parent, a human being, and a business person is the gift of your presence. I think you look at the geniuses, they were fully present to their work. They weren't distracting themselves. That's how they got their genius ideas. And I think, I think, you know, there's just people are spending so, to state the obvious, people are spending so much time and really smart people have figured out how to, how to get people's attention. Um, And you bring it, the only reason I'm mentioning is that I think it could be very valuable one of the chapters in the Everyday Hero Manifesto is called the Troll Deconstruction. And there's, there's nine points where I've deconstructed how to overcome haters. And a few quick ideas. You know, J.K. Rowling, 
J.K. Rowling of uh, Harry Potter said it brilliantly. She said, for some to love you, some must loathe you. So I think the very nature of putting your magic out in the world means you're going to activate people who don't like it. And that just is a symptom that you're doing great work. Like, I think actually in many ways, the more beautiful and influential and brilliant your work is, the more you're going to activate the hatred of people who don't want change and who want things to be ordinary. Secondly, I think about uh, Bob Dylan. He said, don't criticize what you don't understand. Cynics and trolls and haters are they're degraded dreamers. It's just, it's just part of the pro- process. You want to take the stones they throw at you and build them into monuments of mastery as testimony for your ability. So you have millions of followers on a couple of your accounts. When you read something that somebody fires a bullet at you, what what's your process? Just totally laughing at it? It goes right over your head because you're already kind of self-trained? Or how do you think about that? I don't always think about it. Sometimes I feel it. Mm. So we're back in we're back in the heart set. Yeah. I mean, if I if if I read something I don't like, I'm probably just the same as you, Chris. I it, it, if you know if if it's mean, it'll hurt me. So I acknowledge that, and then I try to have some empathy. You know, someone who hurts someone else, especially digitally, is probably not in a great place. So I have some empathy. And then someone once told me, don't feed the trolls, because that's just that's just what they want. It's a great line. It's not mine, but yeah. what they want is a war. So you just ignore them. And someone else said this. It's not my line, but it's let's let let success be your let success be your revenge and let karma do your dirty work. <laughs> so just so just ignore them. You know, I'm very, very grateful. Like 99.99% of the people on my Instagram and Facebook, they're extremely respectful to me and I'm extremely respectful to them. But when it happens, I acknowledge how I feel so I don't swallow it and, you know, suppress it, which leads to a lack of creativity, productivity. That's my point about heart set and not everything, not being only mindset. I ignore them and I just move on and, and, do the work I'd plan through the day. Yep. Elon Musk said uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast that these are folks are fighting for a different army. They're just kind of told to fire at the opposing army. Um, And he says, but if I actually knew that person uh, before that, we probably would have got along really well. They're just kind of doing their quote unquote job. And that's why he doesn't worry about, you know, when he tweets something to 70 million people some of the reactions he's going to get. I thought it was brilliant. I also think potential unexpressed turns to pain. And I think if we haven't, and this is not a judgment again, but if we haven't lived our potential, if we haven't become the people we're meant to be, then a deep part of us is suffering. Because I believe one of the deepest of all human instincts is is the instinct to fulfill our promise and to express our gifts and our talents. I mean, I think true everyday heroism, I think true success has nothing to do with money, fame, and fortune. I think true success is you get you are in the process of becoming the human being that you're designed to be. 
And I think if you fall into the snares of distraction, playing with your phone too much, you know, constantly binge watching on these amazing TV shows that are out there. I just discovered Succession the other day, and it was just like <laughs> incredible. And, you know, again, I'm not against entertainment. It's too much entertainment at the price of education and growth and delivering value in your business and being with your family and experiencing the beauties of life. But I think if you don't live your promise, then you're going to fall into pain. And a lot of people are not intimate with that hidden pain, if this is making sense. Yeah. And so because they don't have the awareness to work through that pain and acknowledge, I'm suffering here because I've betrayed my genius. Mm. Instead, what they do is there is this pain and they feel a bit of pleasure knocking another person down. Yep. It, it is, it, I, I believe it is a dopamine. I believe there is neurochemistry for a moment. You do that thing, it gives you that instant happiness to send that message, which to knock you down a peg, but it actually knocks them down a peg because the conscience of a human being watches everything that we do. Yep. It's a lot of pride. You've talked to some of the largest men and women on the planet, and we've talked about some of the traits that we would probably commend them for, but they're coming to see you sometimes for a reason. What are some reasons why the people that we see as larger than life are actually, you know, vulnerable and what brings them down? What do they need to work on? A brilliant question. Many of the, let's call them world changers that I mentor, suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> the world sees them as these celebrity entrepreneurs and billionaires and sports heroes, but they suffer from undeservability. They actually don't feel they deserve it, and they don't feel they're being true to themselves. A lot of the super rich money is all they have. In the Everyday Hero Manifesto, there's a model, the eight forms of wealth. Money is only one. Our world pretty much sells us. You're successful if you have a lot of money. I believe money is one form of the eight forms of wealth. The others include family, service, adventure, etc. So these people, they've accumulated a lot of money, massive amounts of money. They've lost their family along the way. They've picked up addictions. They're so troubled within that they can't enjoy their jets and their yachts and their mansions. So that would be an, a second reason why they come to me. Third reason they come to me is to, to scale their fortunes, to help them build better companies uh, and make even more money. Fourth reason they come to me is for, I, you know, I believe in spirituality as, as well as productivity. So I have a model in the book called the four interior empires. The first is mindset. I, I, I don't want to suggest mindset's not important. It's incredibly important. Positive, calibrated, elite performer's mindset. But that's 25% of the personal mastery equation. Then there's heart set, which we've talked about, a pristine emotional inner life, which is actually one of the great gateways into productivity and elite performance. We don't hear that connection very often. Third in interior empire is heart um, health set. That's all about vitality, energy, longevity, lots of ideas in the book on that. Very important to have a strong health, uh, physical life that'll give you the energy, give you longevity. And yet, 
Chris, the fourth interior empire is what I call soul set, mindset, heart set, health set, and soul set. And a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people say, well, you know, soul set, would that be important to elite performance, productivity, and a world-class life? I'd say it's incredibly important. If you look at the great men and women of the world, these people were living for a cause that was larger than themselves. And so some of these billionaires come to me because they want to make a difference in the world. They, they felt a lot of their lives, they've been all about them. And so now they want to have some spirituality in their lives. They want to have a cause. They want to serve other people. They want to make the world a better place. They want to leave a legacy. By the way, there's a chapter in the book where I, I, I think legacy is a waste of time. And we can talk about that if you want. But these people want to, these people want to leave a legacy and they want to get more in touch with their spirituality. I find it fascinating. They have so much money, but they're fascinated by silence, meditation, prayer. Is there a God? Is there something beyond the afterlife? And how can I get out of my ego and make a difference in the world? It's, it's very inspiring. Okay, you said something that, um, that I want to drill in on. And you said that they might sure. come to you because they want to scale their businesses even larger and make more money. And in a lot of the work I was doing before we chatted, you talk a little bit about how, and when you just mentioned when we were going on about ego, a lot of these people can't get out of their own way. And you help, to sit, and you help them see the only person in your way is you. So the question is, if I, what are these people that have already, you know, by world standards in a lot of ways are at the top of the mountain and they come to you and go, look, I need to grow more and I want to scale more. I would love to hear like your kind of thought process and how you talk to them and what you work on for them to, um, you know, grow even bigger. And maybe it's correlated to them getting out of their own way. I'm just guessing, but who knows? Yeah, it's, it's both. And I assume you're asking how, how do I help them grow their businesses? Yes. What, what, what does, what do you offer them? So there, there are two pieces. It's I help them become better leaders and even better human beings. Okay. And that's through the Afra tool I talk about in the book. It's about a great morning routine. It's about you know spending a family dinner three times a week. It's, it's about learning how to schedule at a very elite level, which I talk about in the Everyday Hero Manifesto. Mm. I, I help them you know, learn to slow down their minds. I get them into journaling. I get them into what I call the second wind workout which is you've got your morning workout, but if exercise is really that powerful, why not do a second workout at the end of the day? I like a nature walk before. So it's a decompression time before they're with their family. Um, I help them look at their schedule because your schedule doesn't lie. It shows your true priority. So we do all that inner leadership work because a business will never grow any higher than the leader, right? go to a terrible company where you're mistreated nine times out of 10, you talk to the boss and the boss will say, well, we don't really care. A culture is based on the behavior of the leader and the values of the leader. And I see it every, I see it all the time. You see someone operating poorly with a customer and you just see the, the boss doesn't care. So there's the inner piece, the inner leadership piece. What do I do on an external piece with with the company? There's actually 
a chapter in the Everyday Hero Manifesto called The Titan's Decline, where I deconstruct what happens to a world-class company so that it reaches obsolescence. And that's really what I do. We fight that. But some ideas would be this. Number one, a lot of businesses, when they become successful, like like these clients' businesses, they stop doing the very things that made them successful. They suffer from arrogant, institutional arrogance. They become so successful, they fall into the trap of thinking all the, all the customers lining up outside their door will always be there. So they lose their hunger to be merchants of wow. So I look at, is there institutional arrogance? I look at customer service. I mean, your, your frontline people know how the population perceives your business and your brand. But some of these people in the ivory tower have lost sight of that. I'd look at the corporate values. I'd look at the products. We live in a world where most products are mediocre. When was the last time you consumed a product that was like Sistine Chapel ceiling level quality? When was the last time you tried something? You know, I I listened to an interview with uh, uh, about someone who worked with Steve Jobs, and he said Steve Jobs called the founder of IDEO, the product invention company, Steve Jobs called him at two o'clock in the morning and said, you know, those three screws in the back of the iPhone prototype, Steve Jobs said, it just doesn't feel right that there's three. We should make them two. And the the person on the other end of the line said, you're talking about the inside of the the phone. No one's going to see it. He goes, no, it's got to be perfect. So what I'm trying to say is, We look at their products. Are their products differentiated? Are their products magic? Obviously, you cannot have a world-class company with a C-class team. So I look at their team. I look at their hiring. And a lot of times you have people who, they were good for the company at one stage of the life cycle, but they will not get you to the next level because they don't want to grow. They're afraid or they've fallen into bad habits. Those those would be, I look at the brand. You know, what does the brand stand for? Is it really... So those would be some of the things I work on with with the uh, leader to grow the company. Can you talk just a little bit about, um, and you had mentioned it, you know, that they might be very successful, but they have terrible marriages. Maybe they're, you know, they've abandoned their kids throughout the process. Um, you know, what, uh, how these people adapt to what you're saying, and I guess if they have a fragile relationship or Maybe the question is more, how much does what's going on outside of work impact what's happening inside of work? So if you have a bad deal at home, you're, you have, you know, kids aren't obeying, you know, things are kind of falling apart at home. Can you compartmentalize both and be successful at both? Well, the first thing I'd say is I don't want to generalize. Some of these people have amazing family lives and they're healthy and, and they're multi-billionaires or titans of industry and movement makers. But yes, some have lost their family lives or whatever. And again, I can't generalize because some of them have this incredible ability to compartmentalize. And you probably read the business, you know, the online, offline papers every day. You hear people, they've compartmentalized, you know, they're doing incredibly well in business, but they're suffering in their family lives. Then you made another point, well, does it have an effect? I I can't see how it won't have an effect. Again, unless you've 
disconnected from your heart set. So let's say you've numbed out, you have no emotions, you're like an automaton, you're like a cyber zombie. Well, you everything's an intellectualization, you're amazing in business. Yes, then I think you could compartmentalize having a very messy home life. But I think someone who is fully human would take what's going on at home and it would affect us at work. And I think a lot of people listening would agree that if you're having, even if you have a fight with your significant other or you're having a child who's in trouble, it dramatically affects your creativity, productivity, performance, and happiness at work. All right, I'm going to loop back to what you just talked about. Legacy is a waste of time. Yes. Boom, baby. Let's hear it. Well, we're hearing a lot about legacy, right? A lot of of people saying, you know, leave a great legacy. Makes me think what Joseph Campbell said. He said, to live in the hearts of those we leave behind is not to die. And Chris, I used to believe in legacy. As a matter of fact, I wrote a book 20 years ago called Who Will Cry When You Die? It was all about leaving a legacy. Now, I believe legacy is a game of the ego. When we die, we will end up as dust and perhaps in an urn on someone's mantle above their fireplace next to their Little League trophies. No one's going to care about us when we're dead, except for about 10 people. So why worry about how we are remembered while when we're dead? Why not be concerned and obsessed and devoted to living beautifully and excellently while we are alive? I think this whole idea of legacy, one of my favorite books is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And he talks about the chatter, he talks about the tongues of posterity. May we not be worried about the tongues of posterity. Let's just get busy living each day creatively, productively, excellently, ethically, soulfully. And the days will slip into weeks, the weeks will slip into months, the months will slip into years. We will have lived a beautiful life that we'll be proud of at the end, and then we die happily. What I'm hearing, it, it's almost like by doing that, you might actually a byproduct might actually be a great legacy. But the people that are doing that aren't worried about creating the legacy. Absolutely correct. If you want to make money, stop thinking about money and start serving people beautifully. If you want to leave an amazing legacy, stop thinking about legacy. Live in you know, your, your, your day, because your day is your life in miniature. Live amazing days that are creative, productive, and soulful, and meaningful. And, and leave people better than you find them. Do that with consistency until you get your, until through practice, you hardwire an interior infrastructure and way of being that you just live like this automatically. And do it daily. And like I say, the days become weeks, months, years, decades. And then you have 50,000 people like Joey Dunlop, the Northern Ireland motorcycle racer, 50,000 people showed up as a funeral to honor him. But I don't think he was thinking about a legacy. He was just doing good. I'm just going to assume I've got a couple more points, but I'm just taking from what I've taken from today. 
Um, what you've described is very much the, uh, and I mean this in the best way possible, the anti-hustle culture. A lot of what we've been preached on the last 20 years is work, 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 work late, never stop working, download this app, this app, that app. Um, I've suffered from it. What is kind of your first, I don't know, for the everyday guy that's listening or gal that's listening, how do we start to unwind that? Uh, like literally with maybe our starting with our cell phone, like what are some practices to kind of try and retreat from that? Well, I'm smiling because the everyday hero manifesto, it's, it's very much about productivity. It's very much about world-class, but it's so contrarian because it's, it's exactly what you said. I even say in the book, it's like, it's not hustle and grind. It's not legacy. It's not, if you're not doing something big, Chris, and changing the world, there's, you know, like I did a podcast recently and it's like, you know, how can we do something big? Well, why do you have to do something big? You know, what about the baker who gets up at four in the morning, does his or her baking, has a nice little business, goes home to their family and gives back to their community? What about the taxi driver who drives the Uber or taxi? Cars flawless. They do their work with dignity. They go home to their family. So it is a book about success and real success. I'm not talking about like pie in the sky, like real success. But I think a lot of like, for example, hustle and grind, it doesn't work. It's not only that I don't agree with it. The most productive people do not work in a linear hustle and grind 24-7 way. That way of working comes from the factory age when if we work longer on the factory, we produce more goods. We live in a completely different era. What the science says in the work of the Energy Project should be acknowledged is the, most, the best performers work in pulses of intense work and then recovery. And that's why in the book I talk about the five great hours rule. Work five intense hours a day not with your phone, not with distractions, not chit-chat. It takes most people five, uh, two weeks to do five hours of real work. And then imagine if you only work five hours, five days a week, you've got the rest of the day off. Yeah, so I don't believe in hustle and grind. And the science says that's not the best way to be productive. I don't believe that mindset is everything. I believe heart set, health set, and soul set complete the equation. I don't believe in legacy. Uh, I believe in things like doing amazing work, but having a great family. Where do you start? Transformation begins with awareness. And you, you, were, you were suggesting something like, but you know, so, sometimes I, I, I follow this philosophy about hustle and grind and I don't feel good. One of the chapters in the Everyday Hero Manifesto, it's okay not to feel okay. That's where I'd start. It's, it's okay not to feel okay. Second place I'd start is how about honoring yourself versus feeling you're broken for not being a billionaire or someone with millions of people on the on um, a media platform? You know, like everyone has value. Everyone, everyone out there is doing their best. Everyone has gifts and talent. Everyone has a beating heart. Everyone has hopes and dreams and demons and darkness. And I think. Where do you start? You start by saying, you start where you're planted and you, you make it okay to have lived a life 
and you celebrate your past as something that was necessary to make you who you are right now. And you honor it. And you say, like, I wouldn't be myself but for my scars. And so you wear them as medals of valor on a life colorfully lived. And then you'll learn the philosophies and the tools and the tactics that science and wisdom have shown us work. Great morning routine, great work schedules, learning how to plan, eating well, biohacking, etc. Great pre-sleep ritual, learning how to communicate. You'll learn those skills that most people haven't, haven't been taught. In today's world, work from home has been it's been two years of work from home for a lot of people. Do you have an opinion one way or the other on, I guess maybe it's more of, do do we need to be surrounded by people to do our best work? Or do you think that in a world where a lot of people are isolated way more than they've ever been, that's going to have a positive or negative impact on things or the verdicts out to be seen? I'm trying to ask that the right way. Yeah, I I hear you. And I think the most honest thing I could say is there's no easy answer. Um, for example, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an artist. I'm in the creative field. I've been working at home for 25 years plus. I, I, I'd go to the office, you know, hardly ever, because when I'm at home and my family's off doing their thing, or I'm in my work lab at home, I go into flow state, and that's when I get my best ideas. And I sometimes, like three, ten hours go by in in one hour. So I have to be alone. I, I do my best work in my, in my work labs, on airplanes, and in hotel rooms. So I, I love working. But that's just because of the nature of what I do. I, and also, I'm an introvert at heart. Extroverts will, are people who, when they're with other people, they get energy. So I think they would need people. I think a lot of people need a team around them to be fueled and fired up. So I think... You know, that's probably very hard for people at working at home. I also think we've been at working at home to an extreme where many people can't leave their home. So that's got that's very, very hard and creating a lot of suffering on people. And so inelegantly, I would say the answer is probably it depends on you, depends on your work. And the answer is also probably somewhere in the middle. Yep. All right. Three personal and then we'll bring it home. Do you have a childhood experience that you remember that shaped maybe the direction that your life went? Yes, I, I absolutely do. It would have been, um, it would have been grade five, and uh, I had a teacher. I, I really wasn't very believed in a lot of my life. I didn't really fit in. I sort of marched to a different drummer, and. This woman right here, that's 80. Her name is Cora Greenaway. She's 80. She's 101, 101 at the time that picture was taken. And she believed in me when very few people believed in me. And she took it on on herself to champion me. And uh, for that whole year of history, grade five, just like sort of saw something in me I'd never seen. And I think that was like, the, you know, all it takes is one person to shine a light on your gifts and talents to change the rest of your direction. And she, that was one of the experiences. I've had great parents as well, but that was one of the great experiences that definitely changed the 
orientation of my life. Okay, then I'll piggyback on that. I have a five-year-old. I have an about-to-be-three-year-old, and I'm having a child later this summer. And oh, great. Thank you. And where we started the conversation on the the potential traumas that happened to you early in life, and a lot of those experiences probably happen with parents. And I'm assuming you've been asked this before, but if you could give me or any young parents listening like something they can do as parents early on in child's lives um, for the better, what would you say? I'm so grateful you've asked that question. And it's a very wise question. So a, a few things I did, right? One of them is I, every night before I went, before the kids went to sleep, I've got two children, Colby and Bianca. Col- Colby's 27, Bianca's 25. And your kids are going to be there before you know it. You've heard that. So before they'd go to sleep, I had a ritual. And I'd read them a story or we'd talk. And then I would say three things. And I don't know if I can remember the three statements. But first of all, it was a practice of offering three statements. So there's a good tool to, to program them in the best possible way. But it was something like, remember, you, you can do anything you want to do. Then there was a second one. And the third one was, remember, daddy loves you. And I, I said that to them every night for many years. It was, you can do anything you want to do. Yeah, sorry, I can't remember the second one. Remember, remember, daddy loves you. So that was one of the big, it was that ritual. Secondly, we, we, we watched expenses, but there was never a limit on going to the bookstore together and buying books. And it was a great Saturday morning ritual. I, I, I was a single father. I'd go to the bookstore, we'd walk away with bags of books, and we'd read all weekend. Thirdly, traveling. I took my kids, they were six and four, and I took them to see Michelangelo's David. I took them to um, the Louvre's, see the Mona Lisa, and people go, oh, they're so young, like six and four. It, it affects, it, it influences them, it shapes them. We, you know, we ate beautiful pasta in Italy, so travel with your kids. And the final thing I'd say on it, I learned this from Jackie Kennedy. She she was basically she didn't see herself only as a, a parent to the child to her children. She saw them as a developer. And I'm not my children's friends, even though we're very close. But set clear boundaries. Yeah, you're you're their. Pa- I'm not saying you, but like we are their parents, not their friends. Yeah. And so setting clear boundaries and developing them by taking them to art galleries, reading them great books. You know, teaching them about great food develops them and really shapes them. I love it. I wrote down the three statements. Uh, I'm going to try and put that into practice. All right, Robin, if um, folks want to get in touch with you or read your latest book, which I'm looking forward to finish reading, I've started it, I've not finished, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. The Everyday Hero Manifesto is in bookstores around the world. I think it's rolling out in about 34 countries already. It's one of the best-selling books in the world right now. So you can get it in your bookstore. You can. People are loving the audiobook. Mm. Get that at Audible. People are also ordering it on Amazon. And I'd love to mention a uh, portion of my royalties goes to help children suffering from leprosy, which is a very big cause for me. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Robin Sharma. I'm on YouTube. The Mastery Sessions is my podcast. You can just search Robin Sharma. I've got hundreds of high content videos. And the mothership is uh, robinsharma.com. That's where I put out videos every week. 
blog posts, really robust information on productivity, leadership, spirituality, happiness, and living a life that matters. Robin, thank you so much for your time today. This was more than I could ask for. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. I really enjoyed it, Chris. All right. Good luck with those kids. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.